Good morning. Great to see you today. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke chapter 7, so feel free to open them up. Or if you have it on your phone, feel free to turn it on. That's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning is in Luke chapter 7. It's great to be with you. My name is Jesse. I'm the college pastor here, and so I have the great privilege and opportunity to be able to dive into God's Word with you today on New Year's Eve Eve. So we are still in the holiday season, which means that calories still don't count. So you've got two days. So Derek, enjoy those Dr. Peppers for two more days. Um, and then once the new year comes, then we're back to, to real life. But one thing that I do enjoy so much about the holidays is it's a great time to get together and have people really relive their past through stories, home videos, things like that. Um, this past Christmas, we got together, we watched home videos of vacations and stuff that we did back when we were younger. Um, oftentimes, during the holidays, we spend time telling stories, and when we were kids or reliving our past days um, through just interaction over dinner or something like that. Um, this one thing that I enjoy about the holidays is just the idea of living in our past. So in the holiday spirit, as we get started today, let me tell you a story about my past. A story about the time that I met my wife-to-be, and things didn't go quite the way that I expected them to go. And the main reason for that was my fault. So the story begins, sophomore year of college, uh, me and my wife, Shara, we had a class together. We never met before, um, but early that February, she decided to send me a message over Facebook asking me, a complete stranger, to take notes for her because she was going to be out of class one day because she had a doctor's appointment. So a pretty clever move on her part, right? And one lesson that I've learned is whenever a pretty girl wants you to take notes for her, you always say yes. Now to this day, she still claims that her motivation for asking me was really just because she wanted me to take notes. But I have a ring on my finger that tells me that she's bluffing. <laughs> and, and so... Anyway, she sends me the message, I take notes for her, I give her the notes for the class, but, but after that, we really kind of started talking back and forth over Facebook. And for several weeks, we did this, and we tried to catch each other after class or before class, but we just couldn't quite find the time to meet. But meanwhile, as we continue to message back and forth, I find myself really starting to fall for this girl, like really starting to like her. You know, really starting to connect, really realizing that I could definitely have a future with her. And so you can imagine that I'm really wanting to finally meet this girl in person. And so one winter morning, one unforgettable winter morning, that became a reality. Because as I was walking to class with my brother, we had the class together, we were walking and I saw this girl. And I thought, here's my chance. So I walk over, I'm a little bit nervous, and I'm ready to say hey to her. Now, the whole time I'm walking towards her, about to say hey, I'm expecting this to go well. I mean, why wouldn't I? We've already been talking a little bit, messaging back and forth online. We kind of get, have gotten to know each other. I'm liking, you know, talking to her. And so I'm really expecting for this to go really well. And I know if I have any type of future with this girl, this interaction I'm about to have with her is pretty important. Because this can be a big step in this girl becoming my girl. And, and so I get ready to say hey. And, and to really understand what is about to happen, you have to know something about me. See, I have very deep southern roots. Like Georgia pine deep southern roots. I mean, my entire family is from the deep south. And so because of that, I've been soaked in something that I like to call southern friendliness. 
And you guys know what this is, right? Southern friendliness is when you see somebody at the grocery store, right? You start talking to them, and an hour later, you're, you're dialoguing back and forth like they're your best friend. Um, the conversation ends, and you go to leave, and the person with you is like, dude, who was that? And you're like, oh, I have no idea. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to know where the pasta was, and I thought they knew where it was, and so we just started talking, right? I mean, it's that type of friendliness that's just something that's completely normal for me, something that I grew up with. And, I, and I'm, I'm aware, because I've grown up with this and it's in my family, I have the tendency to have this nozzle of southern friendliness really turned onto over the top when I meet somebody for the first time. And even though this is normal for me, as I've gotten older and a little bit wiser, what I've come to find out is just because this is normal for me, that doesn't mean that it's normal for everybody else. Especially people who didn't grow up in the Deep South and don't have deep Southern roots. And for people who expect a much more normal interaction with somebody that they've never met in person for the first time. And you can probably see where this story is going. Because as I walk up to talk to Shara, and my southern charm is on full blast. She totally gets soaked. And so I walk up to her. I'm like, hey, Shara. Hey, glad to finally meet you in person. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing really good today. Are you excited about this test? I'm excited about this test. Isn't the weather really nice outside? I think it's really nice outside. Are you having a good day? As I said, I'm having a good day. Man, I really enjoyed looking at your face. <laughs> a bit of an exaggeration. A bit. But you understand the picture, right? And so I come into this conversation just full blast and completely caught her off guard and understandably freaked her out a little bit, um, which calls for the conversation to be extremely awkward and just really just, just felt very off. And so I learned a valuable lesson that day. I learned that when over-the-top friendliness meets even-kill normalness, that a train wreck is born. And that's exactly what happened in that very brief conversation I had with her. And so we talked for what felt like forever, but was probably 15 seconds. And finally, after this awkward interchange, I kind of go and sit in my seat. And my brother, who, by the way, was watching this tragedy happen the entire time, <laughs> comes and he sits next to me. And I sat in his class, and I looked over at him, and I said, was that as horrible as I thought it was? And very honestly, he responded and said, yes. Yes, it was. And so you can imagine, that interaction did not go the way that I expected it to go. And so I was just really confused, because we had talked online, and I felt like we had a little bit of a connection there, but when we finally met in person, things did not go well. And so I was very hesitant about any type of future I felt like I might have with this girl. Very hesitant. Now, unfortunately, I was, or fortunately I should say, I was wrong, which is a very good thing. But you can't blame me in that moment for being very hesitant and really second-guessing that I was going to have any type of future with this girl. Because the exchange, thanks to me, went so, so poorly. And so what I experienced on that day is something that we all experience in our lives. And it's this idea that what we expect isn't always what we get. I mean, what I expected to take place in that moment isn't what I got in that moment. And all throughout our lives, we experience this. We expect to get an iPhone for Christmas, but instead we somehow get a sweater. Or we expect to have a nice family holiday dinner, but instead we get kids screaming and adults arguing. Or we expect our team in the SEC championship game to punt the ball when it's close on 4th and 11, but instead we get a fake punt. Right? <laughs> 
what we get isn't always what we expect, right? So what we expect isn't always what we get. And so today, in the passage that we're looking at in Luke chapter 7, what we're going to find out is that John the Baptist is in a situation where what he is getting isn't what he's expecting. And because of that, like me, he is starting to second guess and starting to have some hesitation about some very important things, especially what he thinks about Jesus. Now, John the Baptist didn't always feel this way. In fact, early on when Jesus starts his ministry, we see John as one of the biggest advocates for Jesus. Because when John's ministry begins, he is constantly telling people about somebody else who is coming. Somebody who is more important than he is. Somebody who is going to do greater things than what he does. And so John is sitting there waiting for this person to come. Waiting for this Messiah this long-awaited, anointed one of God to finally step into the scene. And then on one hot Mediterranean day, Jesus shows up. And John baptizes Jesus the way he's baptized so many people. But this time it's different. Because when John baptizes Jesus, he sees the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And in that moment, John realized who Jesus was that he was this greater one, that he was this long-awaited Messiah that Israel had been waiting for for centuries. And when all of this takes place, John buys stock in Jesus. And he believes that Jesus is his guy. He has full confidence that Jesus is this person that they have been waiting on for so long. And because John believes this, he wants to tell other people about this as well. And so we see in multiple occasions when Jesus is walking down the street, John sees him and he shouts out to people. And he says, here is the Lamb of God. And he tells people, this is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. John had full confidence that Jesus was the Messiah. But then, strangely, something happens. And this full confidence that Jesus or that John rather had in Jesus, starts to wane. And so John starts to have some hesitation about who Jesus really is. He starts to second guess whether Jesus is this Messiah. And so as our passage begins, what we see happening is that John is sitting in prison. And he's been there for several months. And in the midst of his confusion, in the midst of his doubt, he sends two of his disciples to go ask Jesus a very important question. As we see in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 18, what that question is. He says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, all the things that Jesus was doing. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent to to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? I mean, this is so bizarre if you think about who John is. I mean, the person who was asking this question used to be the biggest supporter of Jesus. But now as John sits in prison, he's Jesus' biggest doubter. And although this person used to unapologetically point to Jesus as the Lamb of God, now he is seriously second-guessing whether or not Jesus is the Messiah and whether or not he has come to take away the sins of the world. 
And the reason that John is experiencing this dramatic and sudden shift is because of something we've already alluded to. It's because when it came to Jesus, John wasn't getting what he expected. See, John more than likely believed a very popular belief about the Messiah during this time. And it was this belief that the Messiah was going to be a warrior king. And that he was going to show up on the scene. He was going to end the oppression that Israel had been facing under Romans for so long. And so it was this idea that this warrior king was going to rise up and he was going to kill the emperor. And then he was going to bring God's wrath upon God's enemies. All those ones who would hurt God's people. And then he was, in a, he was going to establish a kingdom. A kingdom that Israel experienced in his glory days when David was their king. So that was the idea of the Messiah. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. So as John is sitting in prison, you can imagine as he sits there, he's not seeing any of this happening. And so John starts to hesitate. He starts to second guess those things that he thought about Jesus. Because Jesus didn't look the way that John expected the Messiah to look. In fact, when John looked at Jesus, he actually saw the exact opposite, didn't he? Because instead of somebody recruiting an army to overthrow the Romans, Jesus was telling people to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecuted them. Instead of personally training to take down the most powerful man in the known world, Jesus was telling people to turn the other cheek and to not resist the person who is evil. And instead of talking about establishing Israel back to his glory days, Jesus seemed to be much more concerned about a heavenly kingdom than an earthly one. And so as John is sitting there in a place that he doesn't want to be, and he's waiting for a release that he doesn't see coming, we can only imagine how completely confused John was. How confused he was. Because Jesus wasn't doing what John expected the Messiah to do. And so he started second-guessing whether or not this was the one that God had sent to redeem and to rescue his people. And when we look at what's happening here, right, we can totally understand what John is going through. We can totally understand. But what we see in this passage and what John is experiencing actually isn't that unusual if you really get down to the core of it. Because not only do we see if we really dig deep into what ha is happening here, we don't only discover that we can completely understand what, what John is going through, we also realize that we can completely relate to what John is going through. Because if we're honest, there are times in our lives where Jesus doesn't live up to our expectations either. When it comes to Jesus, we don't get what we expect. There's times that we experience suffering and pain in our life. And we just want to get out of it. We just want to get rid of it. We just want God to make it better. But we notice in that situation that nothing happens. And so we find ourselves doing what John does here. And we start to second guess. We start to become hesitant about whether Jesus really is who he claims to be. See, for John, the question was, is Jesus the Messiah, right? That's why he doubted. That's what he was wondering. 
But for us, it's probably something different. It might be something like, does Jesus even care about what's going on in my life? Or is Jesus really in control of all this stuff that seems to be happening to me? Or does Jesus really love me as much as I've been told that he does? And see, when these questions come in our mind and we find ourselves being hesitant, it's because we have an expectation that we've set, an expectation that we want Jesus to live up to, and he's not. And so because of that, we start to doubt. And so we understand and we completely relate to what John is experiencing here, right? Because what he experiences is also what we experience, and it's this. We hesitate to believe it since we struggle to see it. And the it that we hesitate to believe because we struggle to see can be so many different things. See, for John, the it was Jesus being the Messiah. See, John was hesitant to believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he struggled to see how he was. Because he looked nothing the way that John expected him to look. And so because of that, doubt entered into John's mind. And for you, it could be something different. You might hesitate to believe that Jesus cares about you since you struggle to see any good explanation for why you have this misery in your life. Or you might hesitate to believe that Jesus is in control since you struggle to see any type of silver lining behind all this heartache that you're walking through. Or maybe you hesitate to believe that Jesus really loves you since you struggle to see if he does, why would he cause all this pain to happen in your life? And in these moments that we can't see any type of purpose behind what Jesus is doing and what God is working in the midst of our lives, we too find ourselves doubting. So we understand this. We know what John is going through here. Because we hesitate to believe that God cares, or that God loves us, or that God is in control in the times of our life that we struggle to see it in the midst of our pain. But as John is sitting there in this dark place, in this dark moment, questioning what is going on and questioning who Jesus is, we'll see that Jesus actually responds to John in the middle of his hesitation. And what Jesus says to John helps us as we wrestle with doubt in our lives as well. So let's begin, or continue rather, in verse 21, and let's read that together. It says, in that hour, he, being Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered him, or answered them. So Jesus is responding to the disciples of John, and this is what he says. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is he the one who, do, who is not offended by me? What I love about Jesus' response to John is in the middle of John's second guessing, Jesus does not belittle John. Jesus doesn't ridicule John. Even though John is hesitant about who Jesus is, Jesus comes to him full of grace, and he simply points to the proof. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he's using phrases and words that would have reminded John of what the Old Testament said about this coming Messiah. Especially in the book of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah 29, 18, we see that when the Messiah comes, that the deaf will hear and the blind will see. In passages like Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, we see that when the Messiah comes, he will preach the good news to the poor. A passage that, ironically, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth in order to proclaim to the people there that he was this long-awaited Messiah. And so what is Jesus doing here? What Jesus is doing is he is redirecting John's expectations so that he bases them on Scripture and that he doesn't base them upon culture. Right, culture that he was living in, right, the society that he was living in had these expectations about the Messiah, that he would overcome the Roman Empire, that he would kill the emperor, right, that he would reestablish this kingdom that Israel had under David. That was the society's expectations, but Scripture's expectation was much different. Instead, it talked about the Messiah coming and giving sight to the blind, raising people from the dead, allowing those who can't hear to hear and having the good news preached to the poor. And so Jesus is taking this idea, these expectations that John has, and he's redirecting them. And he's showing John, I'm not doing anything wrong. But your expectation of what you want me to do, that is what's wrong. Now one thing that John does get right, is John does have this idea that one day the Messiah will come and be a warrior king. And we know that that is in fact true. That one day Jesus will come back and he will establish his kingdom here on earth. And that he will reign on that throne forever as God promised David that his descendant would. And we know that one day the enemies of God, like death, the devil, and the grave, will ultimately be conquered. We know that. But see, the problem was that John's timing was off. Because all those things that we're talking about is going to take place when Jesus comes back a second time. And so John, he missed it. See, he didn't realize that when the Messiah came the first time, he would come as a sacrificial lamb of God. He would die on the cross for his people. That he would die in their place so that anybody who chooses to have a relationship with God can have that because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. But John was confused because he expected what Jesus to do at his second coming. He expected him to do that at his first. And it's important that we understand what's happening here because the mistakes that John makes are oftentimes the mistakes that we make. First, we oftentimes find our expectations of Jesus much more based upon culture than based upon Scripture. And this is what I mean by that. We live in a society where comfort is what we long to have. In fact, Pastor Matt Chandler over at the Village Church says that the God of this age or the God of this generation is comfort. We want to have a comfortable life. We want a life free of pain and free of suffering and free of heartache, right? I know that I do. We want that in our life. And so since Jesus is our Savior and our God, we expect him to give that to us. 
We expect Him to give us a life that we're not experiencing suffering. And so when we find ourselves experiencing that in our lives, that's when we start to become hesitant about who He is. That's when we start to second guess. Because we're expecting a life free of pain, but we don't have that. But the problem when we do that is we're making the same mistake that John makes. And we're expecting Jesus to do something at his first coming that he doesn't promise he'll do for us until his second. Because when you see throughout the New Testament, when you see throughout the pages of Scripture, we are not guaranteed a life free of pain and suffering. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, you see really the exact opposite of that. Because you see people like Paul, who constantly lived a difficult life even after he becomes a Christian. I would say especially when he becomes a Christian. I mean, Paul has a thorn in his flesh that to our knowledge never goes away his entire life, that God, he says, allows him to have so that Paul will realize that his grace is sufficient for him. And Paul even tells Timothy that anybody who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And when Peter writes to the Christians in 1 Peter, we see they're experiencing heartache and suffering in their life. And so in this first round, when Jesus comes, the point wasn't to eliminate pain and suffering. Instead, it was to give it a purpose. And that God can use that pain and that suffering to enable us to look more like Jesus. But see, we often make the same mistake in our lives that John does. Because yes, one day our pain will be gone. One day heartache and death and so many things that bring us so much misery is going to be gone. But that's not now. And even though we might not understand why God has done that, we have to choose to trust that he has done that for a good reason. And so we can't make the mistake that John does. We can't confuse what Jesus does at his second coming with his first. And so as we wrap up our time together, this is what we can take away from this passage. Is that first, we have to allow our mind to be redirected by Scripture, which is exactly what Jesus does here. When he reminds John what Scripture says, the expectations found in Scripture, not the expectations found in society. And so when we don't understand why God is doing something, when we don't understand where he is in the midst of our pain, we have to remember what Scripture says. That God is always with us and that he'll never leave us. That God wants us to throw our anxieties upon him because he does care about us. And that God loves us as his children, so much so that he was willing to die on a cross so that we could become his children. And that God works all things out for good, even the horrible situations that we find ourselves in. That's what we hold on to. And then the next thing that we have to do is that we have to realize that even when we can't see the purpose behind why God is doing something, we have to trust that his plan is good anyways. Because as Jesus ends this statement to John, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's telling John, you got to trust me here. He doesn't tell John whether or not he's going to rescue him from prison. He doesn't tell John why he doesn't look the way that John wants him to look. Instead, he tells John, don't be offended by what I do. Trust me. 
trust me. I've got this. And that's what we have to do as well. When we don't see why God is doing something, when we don't see the purpose behind our pain, we have to trust that God's plan is good anyways. And that's what we have to rest in. And so that's what I want us to walk away with. That's my challenge for us today, is that when we can't see his purpose, we believe in his plan. When we don't understand why something is happening in our life, we have to believe that his plan is good. That his plan is bigger and better than anything that might be happening in front of us. And we live to rest in that in the midst of our pain. So let's do that today, right? Let's learn that when we can't see his purpose, that we believe in his plan. But let's do that specifically in 2019. Because there's no doubt that if 2019 is like every other year, we're going to experience pain. Times in our life that we're tempted to second-guess God, to doubt him, because he's not doing something in a situation that we expect him to do. And when we find ourselves in that moment, we need to stop. And we need to say, God, even though I can't see your purpose, I'm going to choose to believe in your plan. That what you're doing is working in my life to make me look more like Jesus. And you're doing it for my good and for your glory. So let's do that today and let's do that in 2019.